Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Radio Westeros, episode 39. Here be dragons. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm your host, Yoke Boy, and with me is Lady Gwyn. Yeah, hi there, and thanks for tuning in today. Today we invite you all to come on an adventure with us to the edge of the known world and back. This episode is all about exploring George's vast world and the mysteries to be found along its outskirts. Yeah, we wanted to try and do something new and hopefully original for this episode. So today, we'll talk about exploration and the concept of Here Be Dragons, followed by a look at Lomas Longstrider. And we'll even try to figure out what his full list of world wonders could be. Then we'll embark on our adventure as we set sail on a journey to the farthest reaches of the map. This will be done in a pseudo-travelogue style and complemented by analysis sections. Ever wondered what a journey to the far east of Essos would be like? We've used every detail we could find to build an accurate journey for you. So expect enigmatic places like Eben with their whalers, the Thousand Islands with strange inhabitants sacrificing to fish-headed gods, Nefer with its underground city, Ashai with its black river, Stigai with its haunted corpse city, and Sothorius with its terrible wyverns, all to be discussed here today. Fans of world building, the exotic, and of course mysteries will find plenty to chew on today. And as an aside, those of you listening at home who own the Lands of Ice and Fire map books might want to break out those eastern maps and follow our route around furthest Essos to get a full grasp of the geography. We also want to mention the fabulous Essos map by Michael Klarfeld, which we highly recommend both as a guide and as a piece of art. You can download it from his website, claradox.de, that's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X.de, and while you're there, check out his maps of Westeros and the Iron Islands. Michael's also working on some new projects, all of which you can find out about on his website, so be sure to check that out. So today we're offering something new and we really hope that you enjoy it. And speaking of epic journeys, we couldn't keep our ships sailing without our patrons. 
Thanks to all of those who have contributed and continue to keep us afloat. And so special thanks to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patrons, Harry Krishna, John Weirgarian and Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Kelly, Rory, Laura and Sister Winter. Yeah, thanks everyone. And now it's time to get started with Here Be Dragons. I like my readers to see my world as my characters see it, and the truth is, medieval maps were not very good by modern standards. A map drawn by an Englishman in 1300 might be fairly accurate for England and maybe France, but distortions and errors would start creeping in when you got to Italy and Germany. The Russias and the Holy Land would be more distorted still. Africa was largely unknown below the Sahara, even the coast, and further east you started getting the realm of Prester John and the land of two-headed men, and here be dragons. George R. R. Martin, 2012. The phrase, here be dragons, in its modern usage, means dangerous or unexplored territories, in a throwback to days of yore when explorers and mapmakers used to include mythical creatures on uncharted areas of their cartography. Ending a Song of Ice and Fire series, and this podcast for that matter, has so far focused largely on Westeros, of which the only geographical mystery lies to the far north of the continent. The eastern continent of Essos has had rather scattered coverage, with large parts, especially to the far east, remaining dim and shadowy in our mind's eyes. However, in 2012, The Lands of Ice and Fire was released, a wonderful map book revealing the known world as the Citadels see it. The Far East was largely revealed, as well as some of Sothorios, and just the smallest glimpse of Ulthos, which was new to readers and the canon. George had this to say on his blog. The maps are huge and beautiful, and while they don't show the whole world, sorry, no, you're not going to get the Westerosi equivalent of the Americas or Antarctica or Australia, assuming such places exist, you will get a glimpse of distant lands where my characters, and thus the novels, will likely never go. It's not a complete world map. The idea was to do something representing the lands and seas of which, say, a maester of the citadel might be aware. And while the maesters know more about Ashai and the lands beyond than a medieval monk knew about Cathay, distance remains a factor, and past a certain point, legends and myths will creep in. Here there be winged men and such. And George was right about the beauty of the maps, but at that time, there was a certain emptiness about the lands of ice and fire. There were many new places that we simply knew nothing about. There was almost a touch of pointlessness about them, with no facts to accompany our mental images of the far-flung places, until the world of ice and fire was released in 2014. With a large section on the Far East, the pseudo-historical tome complemented the map book perfectly, and drawing on both we can now explore exotic, intriguing, and far-flung destinations. So today, we will embark on a journey to those places where we can speculate, theorise, and examine distant and obscure territories and mysteries. 
The Citadel have made this map from the notes and sketches of explorers. Today we ourselves will be the explorers. And to whet your appetites for the adventure of exploration, up next we're going to take a close look at one of Westeros's great explorers, the one and only Lomas Longstrider, who many years ago embarked on an adventure in which he identified the 16 wonders of the world. Lomas Longstrider told it true, the road's a wonder. Lomas Longstrider? asked Duck. A scribe long dead, said Halden. He spent his life travelling the world and writing about the lands he visited in two books he called Wonders and Wonders Made by Man. An uncle of mine gave them to me when I was just a boy, said Tyrion. I read them until they fell to pieces. The gods made seven wonders, and mortal man made nine. Lomas Longstrider was the old Westerosi equivalent of a travel writer, exploring, discovering, and evaluating interesting places near and far. In the main series, his mentions are exclusively within Tyrion point of view chapters, a character whose imagination was sparked as a child by his world-traveling Uncle Jerrion, and whose story has become a travelogue of his own. Among Lomas's notable works are two books evaluating and naming the wonders of the world, similar to our own Seven Wonders of the Natural and Ancient World. The list of man-made wonders of our ancient world included the Great Pyramid at Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes, and the Lighthouse of Alexandria. This list came from the era of Greek conquest in the 4th century, which encouraged Hellenistic travellers to explore surrounding civilizations. However, the list of wonders being man-made in itself is therefore subjective, and it's no wonder the seven wonders were all in relatively close proximity to Greece. No Great Wall of China or Mayan pyramids here. Given Lomas Longstrider was surely modeled on such travelers, we should remember that he'd be susceptible to the same constraints. He could only experience places he visited in person, and so, for example, we know the Thousand Islands can't be one of his natural wonders, as it was beyond his bounds. And we also don't know when exactly he lived and wrote. It was most likely before the doom, with a chance that it was in the subsequent century. It could have been as far back as six or seven hundred years ago, given the Titan of Bravos's inclusion. And Lomas offers 16 wonders, seven natural and nine man-made, which we'll discuss later. The World Book made great use of Lomas as a device in which to have provided extensive information on the East, given the pseudo-realistic style of the tome. With the map book's eastern pages in hand, we can get some idea of his journeys and limitations. Longstrider visited the Rhoyne and spoke to locals about the Long Night and the folklore surrounding it, which should be of great interest for the Citadel and reader alike. 
Before this was stated in the world book, we had no idea if the freezing and darkness had reached Essosi shores. Lomas's work was clearly of great cultural as well as geographic appeal, invaluable knowledge. He also wrote of Croyan and warned other travellers of the neighbouring grayscale epidemic, this time providing a health warning. He visited free cities, acknowledging wonders in Norvos, Bravos, and Volantis. His search for glimpses of the awesome took him to places as diverse as the Summer Isles and the Bone Mountains, and he made it still further east to explore Yiti and Lang. Unfortunately, Lomas never made it to Ashai, yet was far enough east to meaningfully converse with local merchants, who, quote, asked him if it was true that the Lion Lord lived in a palace of solid gold and that crofters collected a wealth of gold simply by ploughing their fields. Such conversations provide a fascinating glimpse of what the Far East thinks of Westeros and causes us to consider that the flow of Chinese whispers goes in two directions. Overall, Lomas Longstrider serves several important metatextual functions. He inspires Tyrion and allows him to convey otherwise impossible knowledge, which both makes Tyrion's journey more interesting to the reader and is one of many tools George keeps in his world-building toolkit. Lomas provides insight that makes the world book's realism more convincing. The Citadel took great interest in his knowledge and discoveries, and Maesters relay that to us. Finally, in speaking of verisimilitude, Lomas reminds us, as we mentioned, that these types of travellers really existed. They went out on voyages and the limits of human geographical and cultural knowledge could only reach so far as our explorers did. We might liken Lomas to seminal European explorers like Marco Polo, who similarly inspired people with tales of exotic lands, strange civilizations, and curiosities. Okay, and having outlined the value of explorers like Lomas, let's now consider his wonders. First of all, in his book Wonders, he highlighted seven natural or God-made marvels. We know of only one for certain a cavernous complex in Norvos. Here's the quote from Yendel. In some caves can be found the bones of giants and painted walls that speak of men's dwelling here in ages past. One cavern system, some hundred leagues northwest of Norvos, is so vast and deep that legend claims it as the entrance to the underworld. Lomas Longstrider visited it once and counted it as one of the world's seven natural wonders. So the painted caves remind us of the cavemen of Lascaux and similar displays, and the deep caverns entering the underworld might have been inspired by the underground labyrinth at Krubera in Georgia. As in the list of natural wonders from our own world, there's not a consensus as to what might have completed Longstrider's list, but another entry we're almost sure would be listed are the Bone Mountains. Yeah, the bones are George's fantasy version of the Himalayas. They stretch latitudinally through Essos, dividing the land so thoroughly that cultures on either side may as well be from different continents. 
Being the largest mountains in the known world, it's difficult to see how other mountainous wonder contenders, such as the giant's lance in the Vale or the Dothraki mother of mountains, might make the list, especially knowing Lomas was bewildered by their scale. Yandel writes, Even Lomas Longstrider, that dauntless wanderer, lost heart at the sight of them, believing that he had at last reached the ends of the earth. And another likely contender, again visited by Lomas, is the Rhoyne. This river in western Essos is vast, probably analogous to Europe's Danube, and large enough to enable the fantastic-sounding civilization of the Rhoynar, who seemed harmonised with the current and flows of their mother to thrive. Given Lomas's visitation and the pervasiveness of the Rhoyne River, we find it likely that it would be on his list. And our next contender is closer to home in the Westerlands. Casterly Rock, modelled on the Rock of Gibraltar, measures at, quote, thrice the height of the wall or the high tower of Old Town, almost two leagues long from west to east. And that's astonishing, even before we mentioned the generous gold mines. Speaking of which, those Ashai merchants that Lomas spoke to knew of Casterly Rock. If the scale of the rock wasn't enough to make the list, perhaps its legendary status around the world might have forced Lomas's hand. Yet, we can't be certain of its inclusion, and the fact that Tyrion doesn't mention or think of himself living in one of Lomas's wonders might be used as counter-evidence, despite readers not being privy to all of a character's thoughts. Yes, so there are our three likely picks for natural wonders. With the one confirmed entry, that would leave three more slots. It's very difficult to fill in these blanks without knowing exactly where Lomas went or when. With those variables in mind, we should consider the 14 Flames, a chain of volcanoes spread across the Valyrian Peninsula. The World Book depicts lava rivers apparently controlled until the Doom, where the 14 Flames were lost. However, we can't be sure if Lomas travelled and explored before or after the Doom, with no mention of Valyria in the scant information we have, consider these volcanoes as maybes for Lomas's selection. And we mentioned the scale of the Bone Mountains, perhaps inhibiting the inclusion of other mountains like the Giant's Lance or the Mother of Mountains, but still, Lomas may have wondered at these landmarks in terms of their beauty rather than their size. And the Giant's Lance is not only the largest mountain in Westeros, but it also gives the mesmerizing waterfall Alyssa's Tears its platform. Since our own real-world list generally includes such wonders as Victoria Falls or even Niagara, it might be a good option. Similarly, the Mother of Mountains is beautiful and impressive in its contrast with its surrounding environment. Either one could have made it on Lomas's list, yet we wouldn't like to bet on it. No, we wouldn't. And another contender is the Forest of Kohor, noted for its impenetrable size and diversity of wildlife. So vast is the forest that man has yet to explore all of it. The unshakable natural beauty of a grand forest might have been impressive enough for Lomas. Or even, perhaps, the Dothraki Sea, which we see in A Game of Thrones, with its extreme scale and natural beauty with the Pereri grasses in full bloom. 
Okay, so there are more contenders that fans have considered, but we have offered a decent selection to get you going, we think. And while the confirmation of just one natural wonder underlines how little we know about that book, the same cannot be said for Longstrider's related work, Wonders Made by Man. Of the nine selections, various sources combine to give us solid confirmation of six wonders with other strong possibilities. Okay, so the wall is an obvious inclusion, so obvious in fact that George himself didn't mind confirming it when pressed by a fan question. Thought to be built by giants, children of the forest and a man called Brandon the Builder to keep the others at bay, the wall has stood tall for thousands of years since, now to a height of 700 feet and width of 300 miles. George had the notion of a wall swimming around in his mind since a trip to the similarly guarded Roman defensive fortification of Hadrian's Wall in the early 1980s. As he often asserts, fantasy does it bigger and better. Yeah, although funnily enough, uh, when George contemplated the set of the wall being built for the Game of Thrones television show and realized how high 700 feet really was, he indicated that he may possibly have overdone it just a little bit there. And also confirmed in the same video is the Titan of Bravos. Reminiscent of the Colossus of Rhodes, it's huge in stature. It's positioned at the entrance to Bravos, and this is a defensive wonder whose body is used to house soldiers who can drop pitch or boulders or weapons onto incoming enemy ships. It seems to have been a great deterrent in conjunction with their Venetian-esque arsenal. And in A Dance with Dragons, we get... Another confirmation. As we heard in the opening quote from Tyrion's journey to Volantis, Lomas Longstrider told it true. The road's a wonder. He's talking about a road which were part of a network of roads built by Valyria and presumably its slaves. Strategic, enduring and practical, the Valyrians built their roads in straight lines. And it was in our world of the Romans who were noted for doing the same thing for efficiency and defensive purposes. And the confirmation of three more wonders came with the world book. Firstly, the Valentine Longbridge made the cut. Yandel writes, Strong enough to support the weight of a thousand elephants, or so it is claimed, the Long Bridge of Atlantis stands today as the longest bridge in all the known world. Lomas Longstrider named it one of the nine wonders made by man in his book of that title. So a thumbs up to the Volantine Longbridge. And next, Norvos registers its second wonder. Their three bells, Noom, Nara and Nael. Perhaps inspired by the call to prayer of Islamic cultures, the busy three bells, quote, Tell the Norvoshi when to rise, when to sleep, when to work, when to rest, when to take arms, when to pray, and even when they are permitted to have carnal relations. And finally, the old kings of Sarnor resided in a palace with a thousand rooms until the Dothraki invaded its city of Sarnath and razed it. 
This also denotes the best anchor port for guessing the date of Lomas's exploration in that it must have been before the fall of that city, which we know was in the century following the doom. Additionally, there are two more likely candidates in the walls of Karth and the Great Pyramid of Gis. Both are noted to have been visited by Lomas, although as a caveat, the World Book highlights that perhaps not everywhere mentioned in his books are necessarily wonders. The walls of Karth are described as a triple-layered defense, adorned with fantastically intricate artwork featuring animals, scenes of war, and lovemaking, respectively. Daenerys visits Karth in person in Clash of Kings, and Tyrion mentions in Dance that, quote, Lamas Longstrider saw the walls of Karth. Given that Tyrion himself mentions only the Wonder Books, this could be interpreted as confirming the walls as a Lomas Wonder. Yes, it does get a bit tricky. And finally, the Great Pyramid of Gis, which was no doubt inspired by the Pyramids of Giza, and in turn inspired the Great Pyramid of Marine in story. Tyrion thinks about Lomas visiting its colossal ruins, and while this devastation has caused some readers to doubt its inclusion on the list, the same argument we made in the case of Karth regarding Tyrion's knowledge of Lomas's works could apply here. And so, with just one or two slots with no claims, some of the other contenders might be the High Tower of Old Town, the Five Forts of the Far East, or the Mazes of Lorath. We're sure you can think of more, so rack those brains and see what you can come up with as more interesting possibilities. Yeah, do let us know in the comments across social media what you think could be in those slots. Longstrider's two books about wonders, which might have included further travelogue sections, must have caused great intrigue over the years, given that Tyrion is still fascinated by them in the current story. The process of trying to complete Lomas's list is quite an enjoyable one, as we explore George's rich world in our minds and debate with one another the merits of certain creations. As with Tyrion, the works of Lomas Longstrider bring out the childlike fascination in the reader too, a complement to the author's fantasy world building. How mind-blowing it must have been for the ancient Greeks to read about the seven wonders in our world. Not to mention inspiring. And speaking of being inspired, now we're ready to embark upon our exploration. For this episode, we'll take you along on our own journey around the perimeter of the known world. Over many dangerous and exciting months of travel, we compiled notes for you listeners that we hope will bring the shadowy edges of the map into sharper focus. Our own travelogue will be presented in chapters alternating with analysis of the areas and people we came in contact with. As we set sail into Terra Incognita, Remember the words of the great explorer Marco Polo. You will hear it for yourself, and it will surely fill you with wonder. Part 1. Lorath to the Thousand Islands In King's Landing, we chartered a ship for our great voyage into the unknown. 
we chose a cog over a galley for its extra storage space and endurance in rough seas, although we'd better be careful of high winds. We approached the Lysini captain of Seastrider, who had been trading between Lys, Duskendale, Pentos, Tyrosh and Old Town. After successfully negotiating the chartering of Seastrider to include his skippering and crew, we began preparations in spite of a lighter purse. The captain will escort us to Nefer on the northern coast of furthest Essos. Seastrider, we're assured, is a vessel of sound integrity and the captain is a man who claims to have no fear of the adventures charted on our maps. After loading the hold with salt fish, dried beef, beans, potatoes, wine and barrels of fresh water, we prepare to set sail, heading across the narrow sea to the free city of Lorath for additional supplies. Like Corlys Valerian and Lomas Longstrider before him, we set out to explore Terra Incognita in spite of certain danger and adversity. Our mission is to bring knowledge of the unknown to our loyal listeners. Here be dragons. After setting sail, we eased past Dragonstone, sculpted by the arcane arts of the Valyrians. The place emanated grimness, even from half a league away. The winds were good, and we sailed across the narrow sea with no concerns. Our captain claims to have navigated the sea half a hundred times, and after barely more than a fortnight, we could make out the awe-inspiring Titan of Bravos. A few days later, we arrived at Lorath Bay, where we anchored in order to explore and take supplies. Our captain, who insisted on the right to trade as part of his contract, was seen loading seal pelts and rich textiles onto Seastrider. Lorath itself seems a bleak, stony place, located on the west side of one of three islands in the Storm Sea. While a modest place in comparison to the tales I've heard of other free cities, the network of mysterious ancient mazes are a fascinating part of Lorathi culture and history. This labyrinthine display of enduring carved stone with bewildering complexity should at least be considered a contender for a wonder of the world. So, as we just heard in the travelogue there, the maze network on Lorath is something quite special amidst a rather bleak setting. The mazes were constructed by a people known simply as the Maze Makers. Spread across Lorath, neighbouring island Lorassian, and the mainland beneath, the biggest puzzlement among scholars seems to be their purpose. Sometimes stretching four levels beneath the ground is difficult to say whether they were for fortification, religion, habitat, or even something stranger. Yeah, and the mystery aspect reminds us of places like Stonehenge in our world, which has had scholars debating for centuries. Yet a truer parallel might be found in ancient Crete, where Greek mythology tells us that Daedalus built a complex to hold the Minotaur. 
It was so cunningly built that it worked and is counted as the world's first labyrinth. Some argue a disused stone quarry on Crete, which is riddled with an elaborate network of underground tunnels, could be the original site. Either way, Daedalus's maze could have been an inspiration for George. Yes, it's possible. And of equal mystery is what became of the maze makers, who despite their obvious skill in hewing stone, lived long ago and didn't keep records. Lorathi legends tell tales of a, an invasion from the sea, including lively stories of merlings, selkies who are sealmen, and walrusmen. For the later races who happened to stumble upon a magnificent ghost town, it must have seemed like any of this was possible. The shivering sea is grey and cruel, and such were the winds of the last week that our mainsail ripped. The waters were so turbulent that we feared disappearing under a wave, and our captain has been finding nightly refuge in sheltered bays. As such, we've made two unexpected stops on the coast to the city of Morosh and the kingdom of Omba, where we currently anchor. At Morosh, we were able to take on barrels of fresh water as the town lies on the San River Delta. As a colony of Lorath, the locals had similar habits, such as talking of themselves as a man or a woman, instead of saying I, which they claim is vulgar. When our sail was fixed, we moved down the coast to Omba. Anchoring in the Bay of Tusks, we disembarked and met a local folk who were preparing for the arrival of a Dothraki horde. This farming community are led by kings and princes who offer the horse lords gems and grain as tribute to placate them. Unfortunately, we also learned that girls are offered too, who will no doubt be exchanged at the flesh markets of Slaver's Bay and trained as sex slaves. We aim to set sail for Ib on the morrow before those unscrupulous and repugnant Dothraki arrive. The travelogue details the journey across the Shivering Sea, a vast and unforgiving stretch of water that continues along and above Essos as far as the known world takes us. As the name suggests, its waters are cold, and Yandel claims they can freeze at times. Fishermen's tales range from strange lights in the sky, which are probably like our northern lights, to black-scaled mermaids and ice dragons, which breathe cold instead of flame. Though the existence of monsters is debatable, the waters are rich with whales, fish, crabs, lobsters, and other valuable sea life. Coastal settlements take advantage of the Shivering Sea's offerings, but only with permission from Bravos, whose reach and control highlights their reputation as the world's premier maritime force. Bitterweed Bay is known as Bloody Bay in Lorath and Battle Bay in Ib, and is said to be home for a thousand ships and fifty thousand corpses, which comprise the titular Bitterweed. This tells us that there certainly have been many naval disputes in the area over the years. 
And it's unclear what arrangement the Bravosi have with Morash and other populations, but given fishing is one of Bravos's so-called three pillars, we suggest they take taxes in return for fishing rights and protection. And now back to the travelogue, where the Shivering Sea next delivers us to Ib. Luckily, we stored furs in the hole because the wind is deadly cold this far north. As we sailed toward Ib, our crew sighted humpbacked whales to the starboard of Sea Strider. No sooner had we seen them than an Ibanese whaler appeared on the horizon. We kept our distance and headed with full sails to the port of Ibn. More unwelcoming a place I have never known. Our first glimpse of the denizens unveiled a brutish and ugly people, accentuated by their guttural and grunting tongue. Their men are impossibly hairy and bearded, and not too different from their women. Members of our crew assure me they are smarter than they seem, and yet we were boarded immediately and threatened with rules about leaving the allocated visitors' area of the city. Our hope for a special invitation to observe more of it, which are only offered on occasion, unfortunately never arrived. An exploration of their grey mountains, ancient forests, and rushing rivers is not possible without local consent. Our captain informs me that the Ibanese are barely of the same species as us, which is not difficult to believe. Apparently, mating an Ibanese man with a Westerosi female would result in a malformed child, sterile, like a mule. Mating of the other combination simply results in stillbirth. It appears Ibanese have learned to stick together and seem to have no love of outsiders. We must remain in this restricted area until we can set sail again. Of historical interest is the colossal structure of the God King's castle that dominates the skyline here in the port. The structure is in ruin, but it's still the centerpiece of these cobbled streets, unless you include the dreadful stench of rotting whale meat. So there we heard that the Ebenese seem to stand apart from mankind. Perhaps in the same way Neanderthals and humans were biologically apart. The Ebenese are described as having sloping brow ridges, large jaws, broad chests and a short, squat and ferociously strong. This is precisely how Neanderthals are described and so we wonder if George took some influence there. The claim that Ebenese cannot successfully breed outside its own culture is made in the world book, although we would point to Brown Ben Plum's claim of being part Ebenese as counter-evidence. Whether Ben is exaggerating, Yandel is mistaken or perpetuating some racial prejudice, or dare we say it, there's an oversight from George remains to be seen. And we also heard that in the port of Ibn, locals weren't too friendly to outsiders. This is sometimes the way for islanders in our own world, part of a so-called island mentality. However, Yandel informs us that outside the city, the Ibanese can be even worse, barely having time for their own kind. Those living rurally live a bleak, isolated existence, dwelling apart from each other and restricting social interactions to a minimum. Yet coastal living Ebenese 
buck the trend by being more adventurous. They fish, whale, travel and trade in the great-bellied cogs. Their whale-chasing abilities have made the port of Eben the largest and richest in the Shivering Sea. With Eben being the second-largest island in the known world, there remains many mysteries to be uncovered, such as the claim giants used to live there. One curiosity is Far-Ib, the next island in size, which is apparently far more bleak and poor. Historically, it was a penal colony, perhaps the Ibanese parallel to the notorious French Devil's Island penal colony featured in the book Papillon. Ibsar, the only town and capital, retains its grim reputation to this day. And to the south and on the mainland is New Ibish, a sad and squalid place. Formerly more glorious than Ibish, some distance east, this incarnation of the foothold hides behind a vast wooden fence. The old settlement was once crushed by the Dothraki because the Ebenese were too niggardly in nature to offer homage. It seems the Ebenese are most at home on their large island or aboard a whaler. We doubt Moby Dick is too far from George's mind when he's thinking about the Ebenese, and we wonder if they're friendly enough to gam or treat with each other when whaling, as whalers used to do in our world. And next up in the travelogue is a sweet spot we found on the map that puts us directly between a great mystery and a greater wonder. Our captain struck a deal to purchase whale blubber and oil, along with timber, which are both abundant in Ib, for trading to pick up on the way back. Candle and soap makers in the free cities pay top coin for blubber, and the timber will surely go to Bravos, as they are always wanting for wood. We set sail south, passing New Ibish and the conquered Ibish on the coast. All along the mainland was the most beautiful forest for leagues until we saw mountains on the horizon. We finally landed between both. We disembarked between the kingdom of the Ifequeveron and the Bone Mountains. Our captain claims Ifequeveron means those who walk in the woods, referring to a mysterious ancient race who used to dwell in this vast expanse of forest. We've seen intricate carvings on the trees this vanished race have left behind. Usually such a mystery causes unease among a crew, yet this enchanted forest emanates tranquility, albeit with a certain haunted, silent quality. We left an overnight offering of leaf stone and water on the recommendation of a studious crew member who'd read an account by merchant explorer Brian of Old Town. Apparently such offerings earned a blessing in the time of the Ife Queveron. The world book introducing the Ifequevron and then implying they were related to the children of the forest was a revelation for fans. However, perhaps we shouldn't have been so surprised at the existence of childrenesque creatures on the continent of Essos. Here, yeah, with the implication that they are a race old beyond imagining, 
It follows that they would have spread around or crossed the arm of dawn from either side. Given in our world, lemurs managed to make it from the African mainland to Madagascar. The children, having had associate cousins, is surely not far-fetched in the slightest. And the information we have of them comes in part from Corliss Valerian and Brian of Old Town, explorers doing similar journeys as the one our travelogue suggests. The Citadel called them kin of the children and described them as gentle, although there's reason to believe the usually indomitable Dothraki feared their great powers, having left them in peace. And the question of their disappearance is another mystery. There are two purported schools of thought, suggesting either they were slaughtered to extinction by the Ebonese, which mirrors their struggle in Westeros perhaps, or that they faced other hardships and simply fled the forest. Whatever the case, their carvings have immortalised them and left us indelible evidence of their relation to the weirwood carvers of Westeros. As beautiful as the kingdom of the Ifequevron was, it's overshadowed almost literally by our first sightings of the Bone Mountains. Nothing could prepare you for the bones, as our captain calls them. It's as if the world grew teeth and they jutted outwards towards the clouds, dividing Essos longitudinally into east and west. They're a great separator with endless mountains, most of which could swamp any in Westeros, forming a barely penetrable barrier. The scale and persistence seems endless, as if we've reached the end of the world. We ourselves are witnessing the realm of the Jogwin within the larger Krisaj Saskwa region, whose peaks are so high they're snow-capped and look as though they might pierce the sky. When talking about the Jogwin, one of the crewmen keeps mentioning stone giants. We're not sure if he's referring to the mountains or the people who supposedly resided here. So dangerous is the path through this great mountain range that Yandel says, The bones of men, the bones of horses, the bones of giants and camels and oxen, of every sort of beast and bird and monster, all can be found amongst these savage peaks. And local wisdom says, A thousand roads lead into the bones, but only three lead out. And this is referring to the steel, stone and silk roads. And the northernmost section was said to be inhabited by the Jogwin in days of old. The World Book claims them to be massive giants, twice as big as those found in Westeros, a judgment made by examining their huge bones. Unfortunately, this race of so-called stone giants have not been seen for millennia, and legend has it that it was the Jogos Nai, led by the war leader of the whole people, Garak Squintai, who slew the last of the stone giants of the Jogwin at the battle in the Howling Hills. And back to the travelogue, choices need to be made about how to journey to the fabled and mysterious lands east of the Bones. We set sail for Nefer, heading past the Leviathan Sound's waters, where we heard strange calls from the ocean. 
the crew believed it to be the mating grounds of great whales. We then sailed over crashing waves and through high winds amidst the thousand islands. Travelling this far east has given those aboard Sea Strider the queerest feeling. Many of the thousand islands are little more than rocks and we worry for our vessel. With low stocks we rely on net fishing, yet the fish in these waters are bizarre, misshapen and oddly unpleasant on the tongue. The crew are strangely quiet and we fear disembarking. Our captain tells us the Ebenese describe the inhabitants here as hostile to strangers with hideous green skin and teeth pointed like a serpent's who fear the sea itself. He says there's a reason why the Ebenese have neglected to expand onto the Thousand Islands. Such claims are harder to deny when you're sailing in these frightening waters. Even Corlys Valerion dared sail no further east than here on his northern voyage. Even if we were inclined to, we cannot sail farther. Our captain and crew have become convinced that the legendary sailor's tale of Cannibal Bay lies east, alleged to have entombed a thousand ships, their crews left to feast on one another. Who are we to argue? Times like this make you believe in grumpkins and snarks. We must now head for Nefer and hope for some semblance of normality before we're all driven to madness. Our crew believe the Thousand Islanders would sacrifice us to their bizarre fish gods as they have done with sailors before. One way or another, we have begun to fear for our lives. The scattered archipelago of the Thousand Islands might have been inspired by Indonesia, although with over 17,000 islands, this might be a rare instance of fact being larger than fantasy. According to Ibanese cartographers, they are a mere 300. And real-world parallels end there, though, as these islands are described as being sinister and otherworldly. The strange inhabitants are said to sacrifice sailors to quote, fish-headed gods, likenesses of whom rise from their stony shores, visible only when the tide recedes. These deities apparently scare the locals enough to confine them inland. They won't leave their island even under the threat of death. The inspiration for this fishy religion undoubtedly lies in the hallowed halls of H.P. Lovecraft many of whose influential bizarro horror stories are readable for free on the internet if you haven't yet explored them. In-universe, fans wonder if the religion was inspired by the legendary Deep Ones, another Lovecraftian-inspired detail, who Maester Theron describes as a queer, misshapen race of half-men sired by creatures of the salt seas upon human women. The Leap Ones might also relate to those Lorathi maze-makers who were apparently destroyed by an enemy from the sea. Being the last inhabited place before the edge of the known world at this longitude, 
It appears George has chosen the truly peculiar to provide the final border of the known world, which we will see further evidence of as we travel down through eastern Essos, from the Thousand Islands down to Ishai. On medieval maps, there was often the insinuation of strange beings in uncharted territory, which could have well been the cartographer's imagination at play there. Here in fantasy, we're again uncertain what's really out there, the difference being that fiction allows for green-skinned fish worshippers or really any form of monster. Explorers in medieval times, though unenlightened, must have felt the same way. Here be dragons is a phrase once written in earnest in the real world. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Part 2. Nefer to Ashad. The voyage from the cursed Thousand Islands to the mainland was turbulent. Sea Strider is a trading cog and is unfit for purpose in these waters. Arriving in Nefer, Sea Strider left us bewildered at the edge of the world. The dense fog in Nefer is apparently perpetual, creating a sense of unease. Being vulnerable, we dared not enter the main city as Corlys Valerian first did. Nefer has a sinister reputation for being home to necromancers and torturers. We do not stay to find out the truth of these assertions, or to explore the nine-tenths of the city that apparently lie underground. Instead, we loitered at the city's edge, until a tribe with egg-shaped heads and riding striped zorses rode by. Attempting to communicate with them by maps and drawings, to our astonishment, we discovered one of their females spoke rudimentary common tongue, learned from a magi named Miri Mazdor. After some negotiation and studying of the map, the hairless woman, a moonsinger of the nomadic Jogosnai, agreed to escort us, with her tribe, to the south coast, providing protection, local insight, and carrying equipment. In return, we offer them gold. (laughs) 
Okay, so Nefer was visited by Corlys Valerian, apparently the first Western explorer on their shores, coming in from the harbour, and it at first seems like a small town, according to Maester Yandel, whom himself might be leaning on the exposition provided by Corlys. And being mostly underground, it's known as the Secret City, reminding us of Bravos hiding within their lagoon. It's the only remaining city in the kingdom of Nikai, and we can guess being nine-tenths underground and shrouded in fog provided the two lines of defense that might have saved it from a similar fate to the other cities of Nagai. And if you're wondering what on earth brought Nagai to its knees, we need to look no further than the Jogos Nai. The featured race of Zorse riders function on this side of the bones to the east, as the Dothraki do on the other side. It says that the Jogosnai live in a state of perpetual war against all the neighbouring peoples. Furthermore, we have the following quote about their treatment of Nagai. Their attacks upon Nagai, the ancient land to the northeast of their domains, has reduced that once proud kingdom to a single city, Nefer, and its hinterlands. The details about the Jogatnai were true. Their heads are pointed due to a tradition of binding newborns. They travel in smaller bands, as opposed to the Kalasars of the Dothraki, and are led by hairless moon singers who combine the roles of priestess, healer, and judge. They're also led by war chiefs called Jahats. And it's also true, remembering the travelogue there, that Miri Mazdur did actually train with a moon singer. Here's a quote from A Game of Thrones. Ships from many lands come to Ashai, so I lingered long to study the healing ways of distant peoples. A moon singer of the Jogos Nai gifted me with her birthing songs. And then Miri goes on to describe other things she learned from other peoples. And so with Moonsinger birthing songs in mind, we can't help but think about Miri singing in a, quote, yululating voice, a rare word associated with spell singing, first on the night of Rago's birth and then at the dragon's birth. We'll leave it for you listeners to decide if there's something suspicious going on there or if the songs of Jogos Nye could have somehow influenced either of those births. We headed south with the Jogos Nye, although we first passed by Mosavi slightly to the east, a forested land as impressive as the kingdom of Ephaquevron yet a cold, dark land that's rumoured to be the haunt of shape-changers and demon-hunters. The forest apparently stretches to the end of the known world. Some say it's the world's end itself. From there, we headed south, passing the Cannibal Sands, whose inhabitants we were fortunate to avoid. The cannibals were apparently named so with good reason. We passed by an exquisite and large inland sea called the Bleeding Sea. At the eastern edge of the plains of the Jogos Nye, this sea gets its name from its curious red colour, the result of an unusual local flower blooming. Strategically placed at the sea's southernmost point was one of the five forts. 
the huge structure was quite a sight, constructed with strange black stone and standing extremely tall. The five form a line bordering the land of the Shrikes, who apparently are venomous lizard people with scaly green skin. As horrendous as that must be, it's said even they fear the inhabitants of Kadath. We had no desire to meet either race and leave the protection of the fort, so we rested until we were ready to head west. So, Masavi, as we heard, is a large stretch of woodland that takes us off the lands of ice and fire's eastern boundary. The Sarnori used to travel there, and what we wouldn't give for a Sarnori world map. As for what lies beyond, Yandel says, No man in Westeros can truly say. Certain septons have claimed that the world ends east of Masavi, giving way to a realm of mists, then a realm of darkness, and finally a realm of storm and chaos where sea and sky become one. Sailors and singers and other dreamers prefer to believe that the shivering sea goes on and on, unending, past the easternmost coasts of Essos, past islands and continents unknown, uncharted, and undreamed of, where strange peoples worship strange gods beneath stranger stars. Wiser men suggest that somewhere beyond the waters we know, east becomes west, and the shivering sea must surely join the sunset sea, if indeed the world is round. It may be so or not, until some new sea snake arises to sail beyond the sunrise, no man can know for certain. But what does seem certain is that on the edge of his world building, George puts as much importance on our unknowing as our knowing. And the pair of cannibal sands deserts, being so sinister, block the path to the grey waste, a cold desert. Its city of Kadath is described as a city, quote, older than time, where unspeakable rites are performed to slake the hunger of mad gods. And that's yet another H.P. Lovecraft reference borrowed from The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, a novella centered around a dream god city. What the truth of George's Kadath is, it's impossible to say, but it might be notable that the five forts currently battle with raiders from out of the Grey Waste who could conceivably be Kadathi. And the five forts, as we said, are a prime candidate for Lomas Longstrider's man-made wonders. Allegedly a thousand feet tall and able to house 10,000 soldiers apiece, with the bleeding sea to their east and mountains of Morn to their west, the fort seemed to have been positioned between two natural barriers to contain any monsters from the sinister areas reaching populated places to the west, which is currently Yi-Ti. Yeah, and this barrier may have worked well in defending civilization, but it might also have had the effect of further removing what lies beyond from quote-unquote normal human culture. One such oddity is the Shrikes, whose land lies on the other side of the five forts, described as venomous lizardmen. Whatever the truth of this race, they must have presumably encountered the wrong end of the five forts' bowmen over the years. And other charted areas in this vicinity are the Dry Deep and Bone Town, 
The former is a great deep canyon said to be entirely lifeless and waterless. The latter is stationed just up to the north and it's said the name Bone Town refers to strange aged bones from the dry deep. Those bones surely indicate former life in the canyon and we can only wonder on what form that took and what happened to the canyon to make it so inhospitable now. The lack of details is typical for this area in the far, far east. Once again, George is working our imaginations. From the southernmost tip of the Bleeding Sea, we left the comfort of free-flowing water behind and headed west with our guides. We soon found ourselves surrounded by windswept plains and rolling hills of the grasslands. We entered the heart of the plains of the Jogosnai, which this nomadic race dominates. We rode zorses, and when not living in our saddles, we resided in yurts and tents. The journey through the plains was relentless, yet seemed nothing for this short, bow-legged race. Such descriptions set them apart from the Dothraki, who can be compared in other regards. The Chogosnai don't rest for long and seem to enjoy the freedom of the nomadic lifestyle. They are almost as tough as their mounts, who carry us for leagues without taking on water, and who fuel themselves on weeds and devil grass without complaint. The people, their sources, and the endless plains complement each other perfectly. It's no wonder the Chogosnai have come to dominate so much of eastern Essos. We at last come to water at the Shrinking Sea. This landlocked sea has dried up over the years and has become a series of modest lakes. With soreness from the many moons of riding we've endured, we were also relieved to hear of a road up ahead, although we must avoid the garrisoned trader town, given it's led by Paul Ko, Hammer of the Jogosnai. Instead, we followed the road south and cut across the plains to reach the Great Sand Sea. With a sense of scale like nothing we've seen save the bone mountains that lie behind it, the Great Sand Sea is a magnificent and endless desert valley that looks like the world has come apart. Our guides explained to us that this was the territory of the patrimony of Herkun, whom they won many victories over before the valley dried. The searing heat of the valley moved us on, and we headed west to the foot of the bones, to Biasabad. As we approached, we said goodbye to our Jogos Night guides. We paid them handsomely in gold, as promised, and they left us sources for our remaining journey. We were now on the Sand Road, one of the three passages that cuts through the Bone Mountains. Okay, so some of the similarities and differences between the Dothraki and Jogosnai have been covered. Given the Dothraki originated from this side of the bones, we wonder if these races had common ancestors, if you could look far, far back on the timeline. And the world book illustrates a rich history of war for the Jogosnai, and it's not a surprise that they fought many a bloody border war with the patrimony of Herkun. The Zorse riders took many slaves, and their foes sacrificed many of the Jogosnai to their cruel gods. The patrimony's territory was on the western part of the plains until something happened to wipe them out. According to Yandel, that event was the Dry Times. 
Perhaps during the dry times, rain stopped falling, the drought coinciding with the baking excessive heat that Yandel describes, and the patrimony simply lost their heartland. But one thing we noticed is that in the area, there are three inland watered areas that are now dried in the Great Sand Sea, the Shrinking Sea, and the Dry Deep. It sounds like eastern Essos has a dryness problem that has shaped the surrounding civilizations. Could this phenomenon be related to the warped seasons Westeros has experienced, which are likely magical in nature? One thing's for sure, only the resilient could survive around these parts, such as the Jogos Nai and their tough Zorses. And Zorses do exist in our world too, cross between a male zebra and a female horse. In story, you might recall Vargo Ho of the so-called Brave Companions riding one in Westeros. George's version of Azores highlights a foul-tempered, fiery beast that eats weeds and drinks little, meaning they could easily have outlived a Dothraki horse on this terrain. And speaking of the Dothraki, the Jogos Nai have a similar ambition to crash through the bones into western Essos, heralded in song by their moon singers. However, thus far they have met their match against the warrior maids of the Bones' three fortress cities, Bayashabad, Shami Rihanna and Kaya Kayanana, remnants of the patriarchy days, and so maintain a fierce rivalry. This feud is why we say goodbye to the Jogos Nai before reaching Bayasabad. It's unimaginable that the warrior women would welcome the sight of their foes. Once again, we came to the monstrous Bone Mountains. In contrast to the snowy peaks of the White Mountains we saw in the north, this section of the vast range is named Dry Bones, typically for this region bereft of water. Guarding the sand road through the mountains is Bayasabad, or City of Serpents as it's known. Within this fortified city are a peculiar people. The females are the warriors and wear no shirts or coverings on their breasts. They sport iron rings in their nipples and rubies in their cheeks, one of several local customs written about by Maester Nalin in his tome Rubies and Iron. Another explorer to visit this fortress city was Lomas Longstrider, who wrote that there are no fiercer fighters than the warrior maids. We learn that in all three bone cities, only females fight out of the belief that those who give birth are the only ones permitted to take life at will. Had we wanted to pass through the city, tribute by order of the great fathers would have been demanded, but we sought only food, drink and board. The Great Fathers are the ruling elite, the exceptional men who are not cut to live as eunuchs. Soon we headed out to Asabad, a port city of Yi-Ti. After much anxiety and uncertainty about our passage, we were able to charter a ship to escort us on the return journey home. The vessel is Storm Dancer, a large swan ship heading back to the Summer Isles. Storm Dancer's first duty to us was to hug the coast of Yi Ti 
as we headed for the capital city, Yin. Having seen their windswept plains across the northern marches, we now witnessed their colossal jungle growing from the coast to deep within their territory. The locals of Yin were bright-eyed and sometimes wear monkey tail hats. A local man who greeted us wore oversized silk robes and had a thin long moustache and beard. All Indian answer to the God Emperor, the Azure Emperor Bu Gai, although his status is contested by others. Before leaving Yiti, we loaded the hold of Storm Dancer with fine silks and exotic spices, half depleting our purse. Okay, so Bayasabad is the southernmost fort town, located at the eastern end of the Sand Road out of the Bone Mountains. And as we know from Westeros, border dwellers are often a toughened lot. Furthermore, Yandel tells us, the mountain warriors are all women, daughters of the great fathers who rule these cities, where girls learn to ride and climb before they learn to walk, and are schooled in the arts of the bow, the spear, the knife, and the sling from earliest childhood. There are instances of cultures of warrior women from the free folk to the Roinar. But the culture of the three cities is unique in forbidding their males to fight. The notion of selectively breeding the women with one in a hundred studs whilst castrating the other 99 males is again unique and of course desperately cruel. In our world, that would create an incestuous gene pool. Not that George would be concerned by such science here. And we know from Yandel that these cities began as forts, raised up by the patrimony of Harkoon, and now defended by tens of thousands of these warrior women. We actually see inhabitants from this city in A Game of Thrones in a place of wonder and delight for Daenerys, the Eastern Market. It says that she sees... Warrior maids from Baisabad, Shamiriana, and Kaya Kayanaya, with iron rings in their nipples and rubies in their cheeks. So, this culture of people obviously date far back in George's writing. In spite of this, it's the only mention of Baisabad in the main series. Whether there's a meaning to the ruby piercings and iron nipple rings remains to be seen, but we both wish we could read Master Nalin's book on this intriguing culture. Unfortunately, this book exists only in George's mind. Yeah, like so many other things in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, it seems like our fate is to just wait and see if someday George will put those ideas and words on paper for us. And anyway, in Yi-T, there was mention of a jungle. In fact, Yi-T is a very large and diverse country. Quote, a realm of windswept plains and rolling hills, jungles and rainforests, deep lakes, rushing rivers, and shrinking inland seas. However, with Yi-T's precursor being the fabled Great Empire of the Dawn, George dedicates much of the world book Yi-T-ish section to history, and so we still lack comprehensive detail on the local culture, although there is a drawing of a Yi-Tish man. From that brief snapshot, 
It appears George has taken inspiration from China and Southeast Asia in his designing of the Yi-Ti-ish. Politically, Yi-Ti is the land of a thousand gods and a hundred princes, ruled by one god-emperor, according to Lamas Longstrider. However, to the latter title, there are currently three would-be claimants. As mentioned, there's the Azure Emperor, Bu Gai, in Yin, and the Orange Emperor, General Pol Ko, Hammer of the Jogos Nai, who's seated at Trader Town, if you remember, a town we avoided in the travelogue when with the Jogos Nai. Finally, there's an exiled Yellow Emperor who's said to be a sorcerer lord, and we'll have more on him later. And in the main books, Yi Ti also gets a mention at Danny's Eastern Market. It says she enjoyed watching all the people too. Dark solemn Ashai and tall pale Carthine, the bright-eyed men of Yi Ti in monkey tail hats. So those monkey hats are canon and we see them once again at the Western Market. Across the aisle, a fat cloth trader from Yiti was haggling with a pentoshi over the price of some green dye, the monkey tail on his hat swaying back and forth as he shook his head. And we might have some idea of where this tradition comes from and what the hats are worn in honour of. In the Long Night section of the World Book, Yandel says, In the Jade Compendium, Colloquo Votar recounts a curious legend from Yi Ti which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, and that disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. So the rather inconspicuous blink-and-you-miss-it monkey-tail hat from A Game of Thrones apparently has its own backstory now relating to the Yitish interpretation of The Long Night. It's this kind of depth, continuity and attention to detail that denotes impressing world-building in our opinion. And finally, in A Feast for Crows, we discover Yi-T has had an outbreak of a grey plague. This is almost certainly grayscale, but whether this, or Yi-T as a whole, will affect the greater plot remains to be seen. And next up is one place which will be visited in flashbacks in The Winds of Winter, likely in a Melisandre point of view, and the last place in mainland Essos the travelogue will be visiting, A Shy by the Shadow. On the journey to Ashai, we saw the bordering expanse of ghost grass dominating the coastline with its giant stalks, pale as milk glass. I began to feel the queerest feeling when I'd last felt sailing through the Thousand Islands in the Shivering Sea. I felt the nausea of entering the abyss. Lomas Longstrider and Corlys Valerian both traversed E.T., yet neither made it to Ashai further down the coast, and with good reason. The decks of Stormdancer were lined with barrels of fresh water in Yi Ti. The Summer Islander crew, with some common tongue, explained that they stand to make a good profit from its transport. We saw why when we docked in Ashai. Their river, called Ash, was as black and unnatural as any sin. The city itself is also black, built with black stone, reminiscent of the Five Forts. Although we didn't stay to witness their black nights, even the day was unusually grey and gloomy, 
as unsettling a place as any we visited. We saw halls, hovels, temples, palaces, streets, walls, bazaars, everything black and drinking the light. The city reaches farther than the lens could see, yet so few people reside here. No animals, no children, but a busy portyard. Traders from all over came to buy their tainted gold and gems, as well as things best left unspoken. Like our crew, they all brought in plentiful food and water, as this blackened, cursed city cannot produce fruits or grains or vegetables. Such a foul place attracts a foul crowd, and we saw a range of dark magicians from red priests to the most sinister of masked shadowbinders. Nearly all the denizens conceal themselves and travel in solitude or in ebony palanquins or on the backs of slaves. They say there's ancient wisdom and scrolls telling of the future to be found in Ashai, and with the queerness of this populace, one would be a fool to question it. Dark magic is imbued into this city, and who knows its powers. While the crew negotiated the sale of their water, evening crept in and I saw the river glow in green phosphorescence. We purchased a steamed fish from a street vendor, but on inspection it was hideously deformed and misshapen. We saw the same phenomenon at the Thousand Islands. We set sail for saner shores before the dark city could get any darker, preferring to sleep at sea. To think there are stranger lands behind Ashai, Stigai, Carcosa, the city of the winged men, and the cities of the bloodless men, is unimaginable. The edge of the world is dark and full of terrors. So Ashai is the most pertinent place we've visited so far to the main series, with frequent mentions through the saga. Numerous characters having visited there, like Melisandre and Quaith, and driving plots like the Azorahiification of Stannis. Yeah, it seems George always wanted Ashai at the end of his world, representing unfathomable mystery. Fear and wonder in equal measure, dark magic overlapping with powerful knowledge, and being a cultural beacon that influences Westeros from afar. It's very Martinian that Ashai pays a heavy price for all of its unrestricted magic and darkness. The world book reveals a suitably twisted and unnatural environment of horrid gloom and toxicity, and a tainted place surely taints its inhabitants. The history of Ashai is almost as murky as its waters. It's ancient by all accounts. The huge scale of the city, large enough apparently to house Volantis, Carth and King's Landing all together, suggests a mighty and rich history. However, even the Ashai don't claim to know of its origins. And the concept of the Ashai themselves is an interesting one. We're told plainly there are no children in Ashai, which means there can be no actual pure Ashai. The population must be a continual turnover of foreign visitors, magicians, and traders. However, the Ashai are referred to, and at the Eastern Market, Daenerys sees dark, solemn Ashai. Given the infallible nature of Maester Yandel, whether these are natives to Ashai is one of a plethora of mysteries related to this city. 
And with such mysteries largely falling under the never-going-to-be-revealed-in-their-unknowingness category, we are really excited to imagine how Ashai will be portrayed in Mel's flashbacks, as has been alluded to by George, and perhaps also in Marwin's accounts. It's quite possible that Melisandre Quaith, Miri Mazdur and Marwin were in Ashai at the same time, perhaps a combination of those, and we wonder about potential interactions or juicy revelations harking from Ashai by the Shadow. And don't forget, Danny's dragon eggs are reputed to have come from the area. And of course, there is a persistent implication that there is some dragon lore to be had from Ashai by the Shadow. And so this city, despite being so far away from the story, has captured readers' imaginations and added greatly to the layer of magic and enigma floating over the narrative. Ashai helps to glue the saga together on a fantastical level and adds aching curiosity to the world-building formula. Yes, it does. And back in the travelogue, Lady Gwyn spoke of other less-mentioned places behind Ashai and close to the barrier of the known world. Past the walls of Ashai and further into the Shadowlands, where only Shadowbinders tread, is, according to Yandel, the heart of darkness. Here's a quote. On its way from the mountains of the morn to the sea, the ash runs howling through a narrow cleft in the mountains, between towering cliffs so steep and close that the river is perpetually in shadow, save for a few moments at midday when the sun is at its zenith. In the caves that pockmark the cliffs, demons and dragons, and worse, make their layers. The farther from the city one goes, the more hideous and twisted these creatures become. Until at last one stands before the doors of the Stigai, the corpse city at the shadow's heart, where even the shadow binders fear to tread. Or so the stories say. Okay, so a mention of possible dragons living in the wild, and it sounds like the shadow binders might gather in the darkest places in the world. Is the insinuation that they study and train here, where shadow is almost perpetual? It's notable that the main shadow binder in the story is Belisandra, who proves her skills by birthing two shadow assassins. Did she learn her art here? Given the place is so dark, she might understand the grim reality of the long night and its perpetual darkness better than anyone else, in more ways than one. And as we heard, even Shadowbinders refuse to set foot in Stigai, the city of the night. Described as a corpse city, little is known of it, although legends speak of its haunting. Whether there are truly demons, dragons, and creatures more bizarre is truly unknown. And so we are wondering, literally this time, if here be dragons... And the name Stigai is a nod to Robert E. Howard's Stigai from the short story Shadows in the Moonlight. Howard is best known as the creator of Conan the Barbarian and is a member of the so-called Lovecraft Circle and an author George has cited frequently as an influence. Elsewhere on the Shadowlands Peninsula, 
There are natives and inhabitants who we know have reaved against the outer reaches of Yi Ti. Daenerys might have seen a Shadowlander at the Eastern Market. It mentions, quote, the dour and frightening shadow men who covered their arms and legs and chests with tattoos and hid their faces behind masks. And north of the Shadowlands are the Mountains of Morn, which contains the City of the Winged Men. This city is said to be found high in the mountains, which we assume is where Yandel is talking about when he says, We hear of cities where men soar like eagles on leathern wings. And it seems a picture of birdmen is being portrayed, which would be completely unbelievable were this not fantasy. For reference, here's a description of Rago's body, according to Miri Mazdor. He was scaled like a lizard, blind, with the stub of a tail and small leather wings like the wings of a bat. Yes, yeah, so strange things can happen in George's world. And although the app says the city of the winged men is dismissed by many as a myth, like we said, who knows what's possible in this fantasy world through either evolution or magic? Similarly intriguing are the cities of the bloodless men. The inhabitants are said to be pale as corpses, although there are rumours they have been drained of their blood and resurrected by magic as living corpses. These ideas are of course akin to vampire mythology. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Maybe some sort of bloodless zombie. And then, last but not least, on this eastern edge of the world, where we've seen Musovi, Tuashai, is the easternmost city on the map, Carcosa. If this name sounds familiar, it's because Carcosa is an oft-cited fictional city whose shared mythology dates back to the Ambrose Bierce short story, An Inhabitant of Carcosa, which is from 1886, about a mysterious, barely described city viewed only in hindsight and after its destruction by a character who once lived there. Here authors H.P. Lovecraft and Robert W. Chambers borrowed Carcosa for their own stories, inspiring generations of authors to similarly use Carcosa in their own works. Recently, Season 1 of HBO's excellent cop drama, True Detective, added their chapter to the Carcosa tradition with their Yellow King antagonist who has Carcosian ambitions. And the Robert Chambers book on Carcosa, The King in Yellow, portrayed an enigmatic place not meant to be fully understood by the reader. This inspired H.P. Lovecraft, who also embraced the unknowable, and who also used Carcosa in his Cthulhu mythos. It's no wonder George chose this city to be on the very edge of his world, an homage to several writers and a shared tradition of mystery. And recall earlier we brushed upon the exiled emperor of Yi Ti, a sorcerer ruling Carcosa, remember? He claimed to be the 69th Yellow Emperor in salute to the Yellow King. Chambers Carcosa was also next to a lake, and next to George's Carcosa is the Hidden Sea. Altogether, 
The essence of Carcosa, a city of mystery, intrigue and the unknowable, is not only an apt city for George to pay homage to influential authors, but also serves to underline the tone and point of these mysterious places on the far, far east and at the edge of knowledge. As Maester Yandel puts it, Until travellers return with their tales, a shy and the shadowlands, and whatever lands and seas might lie beyond them, must remain a closed book to wise men and kings alike. There is always more to know, more to see, more to learn. The world is vast and wondrous strange, and there are more things beneath the stars than even the archmaesters of the citadel can dream. Part 3 Lay to the Summarize We left the sinister darkness of Ashai, and the captain of Stormdancer refused to entertain the notion of heading further south to Ulthos, although we could perceive its jungled shoreline on the horizon. So we set course for Leng, a large island off Yiti. Sailing these waters is beginning to cleanse us. The Jade Sea is a beautiful, exotic expanse with prevailing winds to suit us. We passed the Manticore Isles, a chain of small islands boasting a large population of stinging manticores, which are so poisonous that assassins have been known to use them to kill. We disembarked in Leng at Tirani, we're told other cities in Leng resemble Yi-Ti far more, but Tirani is southern and of their old ways. The two streams of traditions here are reflected in their people. We saw many Yi-Ti-ish looking denizens, but also those of native stock. These Lengi are as tall as eight feet with skin the colour of oiled teak. With their golden eyes, they are certainly a beautiful race, especially the women. We saw a parade of animals, including apes of many varieties. We did not want to get too close to some of them, such was their strength. Lomas Longstrider called this the home of 10,000 tigers and 10 million monkeys, which would be hard to refute. Further inland are ruins of the Old Ones, a mysterious ancient race who built labyrinthine structures above and below ground. When we approached, they had been sealed up with a notice of death for trespassers from the God Emperor. Warriors who explored the ruins disappeared or returned mad, hence the forbidding message. We spent our remaining gold on cloves and saffron, jet and jade, and scarlight samite to fill up the hold of Stormdancer. Okay, and so we left Elthos with a mere glimpse of the coastline, because across the saffron straits from Ashai, a glimpse of this land is all we have. George has even joked that he enjoys the complaints he gets from readers regarding the ambiguity of the borders on his maps. To quote him, What's this Althos thing over here? Is it just a big island, or is it another continent? 
That question has, sadly, remained unanswered. And travelling north to the Jade Sea, we wanted to convey the beauty of this stretch of water. On the maps, it's a real tropical blue, also noted as green waters by Yandel. And with all the jungles on the mainlands, it must be a really beautiful journey around those parts. Volantine explorer Kloquo Votar visited the Jade Sea area, writing the Jade Compendium, which includes essential writings on Azora High. There's a copy of that book at the wall, which we really hope certain characters will be taking a greater interest in. Yes, we do. And Lang is both similar and apart from Yi-T. Given that Yi-T has been a large and prosperous country, in spite of Lang's historical isolationism, it's no shock that the island has been influenced greatly by the mainland, with the principal cities Lang-Yi and Lang-Ma resembling Yi-Tish cities. However, the South boasts a native culture of distinctively tall inhabitants with histories and traditions of their own. After throwing off the yoke of the invasive Yitish, the god empresses now rule. They seem intent on bicultural integration, exemplified in their taking of two husbands, one Yitish and one Lengai, in doing so pleasing both sections of their subjects. And now leaving the Jade Sea and heading west, there are numerous islands that are seldom mentioned. The Isle of Elephants, for instance, are ruled by Ashan from an ivory palace, so perhaps he's sitting in his literal ivory tower as we speak. Yes, and the Isle of Whips is apparently a slaver's market of an island, the Jade Sea equivalent of Astapor. It's said to be bleak and barren, which is obviously quite fitting, and more appealingly, there is Marahai, called a paradise isle by Yandel. He says it's a verdant crescent attended by twin fire islands where burning mountains belch plumes of molten stone night and day. And then there's Great Marak. Remember we said Ib was the second largest island in the world? Well, here's the largest, set between the Jade Sea to the east and the Summer Sea to the west. Little is known of Great Marak other than it's comprised of forest, plains, and hills with greater settlement on its eastern side. And on past its companion island, Lesser Marak, and a spice trading island called Vehar, lies the beginning of a new continent altogether. We sailed from the Jade Sea intent on visiting Sothorios. After a week's break at Port Morac, resting and taking on supplies, we were ready to sail up the Cinnamon Straits and traverse the Summer Sea. We first glimpsed Sothorios's northeasterly tip, named Wyvern Point. There seemed to be the green of endless jungle, and we saw the ruins of the Giscari slave colony at Gorosh. Careful to avoid the Axile and Skull Island of the Outer Basilisk Isles, we kept to the coast of Sothorios, to the only place the crew would entertain disembarking, Zamatar. With much trepidation, we anchored and rowed to shore with a few of the crew. This abandoned city is now ghostly and in ruin, with the jungle creeping over the perimeter. Nature wants its territory back, 
codly man was never supposed to live here. There are persistent insects, large crocodiles in the river Zemoyos, toothed fish, and thousands of leagues of dense and hostile jungle under the baking sun, full of terrible beasts beyond imagining if the tales are true. That Princess Nymeria tried and failed to live here with her people tells you all you need to know. She said the city of Yin, the Blackstone City downriver, was found mysteriously empty by a ship, causing her to name Yin as a city so evil that even the jungle will not enter. I wonder if the mass disappearance could have been at the hands of the native brindled men whom we saw occasionally from the ship along the coast. Looking like hogs, the mysterious brindled men have a ferocious reputation. So we left them, the heat, the beasts, and biting insects all behind only an hour after we had arrived. Such is the inhospitable nature of Sothorios. Okay, so Sothorios, also sometimes spelled Sotheros, is an altogether hostile place, which Yandel points out does have its share of riches to be found if one could survive the dangers, which by his account is rather unlikely. Yandel describes some of the dangers here. The sullen wet heat oppressed their spirits and swarms of stinging flies spread one disease after another, green fever, the dancing plague, blood boils, weeping sores and sweet rot. The young and very old proved especially vulnerable to such contagions. Even to splash in the river was to court death, for the Zamoyos was infested with schools of carnivorous fish and tiny worms that lay their eggs in the flesh of the swimmers. Okay, so if you survive the carnivorous fish, your body becomes a host for water worms. Just say no, thank you. The local Sothorii, known as the Brindled Men, must be a tough sort to endure the Sothorios lifestyle. They're described by Yandel like this. Big-boned creatures, massively muscled, with long arms, sloped foreheads, huge square teeth, heavy jaws, and coarse black hair. Their broad, flat noses suggest snouts, and their thick skins are brindled in patterns of brown and white that seem more hog-like than human. And with the additional information that their females bring only stillbirths and deformities when mating with Westerosi males, we are reminded of the Ebonese somewhat, who share similarities there and are somehow different to the humans of Westeros and Essos. Despite the coastal brindled men learning to trade, they are apparently better suited to fighting than thinking we get a small glimpse of a brindled man in Daznak's fighting pit in A Dance with Dragons. It says, Lammen, Jogos Nai, Sullen Bravosi, brindled-skinned half-men from the jungles of Sotheros, from the ends of the world, they came to die in Daznak's pit. And expect further glimpses of a Sothorii fighter named the Brindled Butcher in The Winds of Winter. And while the brindled men are an option to possibly explain what happened when the city of Yin was found empty, it might be that George is leaving it open-ended and an allusion to the Roanoke mystery, where an early English colony in America was found similarly deserted. 
And if one could immune themselves to disease, hack through the thick jungle, bear the heat, the brindled men might be the least of your worries in Zathurios. Tales of pale white vampire bats who can drain a man quickly, tattooed lizards described like velociraptors, gigantic snakes and spotted spiders makes one's hair stand on end. Yet it's the accounts of wyverns that draw the most caution from Yandel. Akin to dragons, though without their fiery breath, wyverns are ferocious and have been known to hunt in packs. The most dreaded is the shadow wind, an all-black wyvern who attacks at night to make himself invisible. With a black dragon in Drogon, perhaps Daenerys could take similar advantage when she reaches Westeros. And speaking of dragons, with so many dangers, perhaps the only way to truly explore Sothorios is on Dragonback, which, amazingly, is what the Valyrian Janera Belaris tried to do. With the dragon Terax, she flew far south, finding endless jungle, deserts, and mountains, declaring it a land without end on her return three years later. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing story just briefly touched on in the World Book. Would love to know more. And finally, the World Book speculates on the existence of lizard men and eyeless cave dwellers who, with no information or stated geography, are among the most obscure races in the entire canon. What's south of Yin, we just don't know, although the Summer Islanders are thought to have explored much further down, but unfortunately they guard their topographical secrets very closely. Leaving Sothorios, the captain and crew of Stormdancer were anxious not to get too close to the Basilisk Isles. Corsairs and slavers roam these waters, and if Sothorios was a hell made by nature, then Gagossus is a hell made of man. The tales our crew told me of the exquisite and unnatural tortures that used to be practiced are horrific and unrepeatable. For half a heartbeat, Stormdancer was in panic as we spied a ship on the horizon with our lens. Some of the crew grabbed their brilliant golden heart bows, second only to dragon bone in quality, and were ready to fend off any foe. Swan ships are notoriously vulnerable without a breeze, but thankfully the wind picked up and we left them far back in our wake. So, the Basilisk Isles, named for the venomous mythical reptiles who inhabit the area, and whose blood was likely used by Jack and Hagar to madden Weiss's dog into killing him at Harrenhal, share many of the problems of Sothorios. As such, Yandel, in an homage to the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, proclaims that life there is nasty, brutal, and often short. As well as some unnamed islands, the unattractively named isles of axe, skull, toads, talon, flies, and tears make up the chain of the basilisks. 
And just as a shy lay at the end of the world, outside of the radius of authority, and so attracted many unscrupulous visitors, so does the basilisks. Although here it's the, quote, worst of humanity, with its slavers, pirates, and murderers instead of dark magicians. However, dark magic was a part of its history, as we learn of Cogossos on the Isle of Tears. One from the Giscari by the Valyrians of this outpost history, Yandel says, The dragon lords sent their worst criminals to the Isle of Tears to live out their lives at hard labor. In the dungeons of Gorgossos, torturers devised new torments. In the flesh pits, blood sorcery of the darkest sort was practiced as beasts were mated to slave women to bring forth twisted, half-human children. Uh, so, evidence of some extremely abhorrent torture there. Blood magic and breeding experimentation. As a side note, we have previously wondered if the Valerians magically imbued the often mentioned drop of dragon's blood within themselves to enhance their dragon bonding abilities, which would have required similarly unnatural magic. Further back in time, there's evidence of ancient raiders on the basilisks. Natives on the Isle of Toads are said to have a fish-like quality, including webbed hands. This reinforces George's world-building theme of fish races that was surely inspired by Lovecraft, and which includes the squishers mentioned by Nimbledick Crab, the inhabitants of the Three Sister Isles who have webbed hands and feet, the Deep Ones, which we mentioned earlier, and the Thousand Islanders, worshipping rather fishy gods. And these webbed people of the Isle of Toad's ancestors carved a giant toad-shaped idol that's made of an oily black stone, presumably the same mysterious substance we saw in Yiti and Ashai, as well as Yin. With the fish folk and the oily stone, George uses the Isle of Toads to underpin two of the perhaps unknowable mysteries that came to the fore with the world book. And there are those in story, and many fans as well, who believe the two mysteries to be inextricably related. And away from natives, the basilisks contain illicit settlements rising and disappearing just as quickly. There's a constant battle to defeat the corsair culture coming from the islands, which obviously endangers trade routes and valuable cargo. Volantis leads the charge to hang the outlaws and burn their ships, obviously inspired by the pirates of our own history. We next travel to Noth, the Isle of Butterflies, which couldn't be more different from the Basilisk Isles. Upon the beach, we met the local inhabitants when we went ashore at night, a peaceful, graceful, and gentle people. They played music and communicated to our crew about their god, the Lord of Harmony. They choose to eat only vegetation, for the Nathi do not kill, not even beasts of the field and wood. It wasn't long before we were wondering why this beautiful island hadn't been conquered and their entire race enslaved, given their defenselessness. Before morning, our crew took us back to the ship with haste. And it was there that they explained to us that the Nathi's defense comes from their protectors, the butterflies themselves. 
They say they only visit Nath at night for fear of catching a local plague carried by a large black and white butterfly that can be found only in daylight hours. It's as if the gods themselves have seen the respect the Nathi have for nature and, through nature, have sought to protect them. For the Nathi are immune to the butterfly fever. Fortunately, neither us nor our crew showed any ill effect from the brief visit to Nath at night. Okay, so Nath is a really interesting place. As we heard in the travelogue, with this mysterious illness, in effect, shielding them from slavers. Given their proximity to Corsair roots, there's no doubt their entire culture would have been destroyed if it wasn't for this natural barrier. Yeah, the explanation about the butterflies carrying the disease seems like a plausible one to us, given that visitors are unlikely to get the sickness after a brief visit at night. However, the butterflies don't offer a fail-safe firewall for the Nathi. Slavers have learned to attack at night and can take whole villages into bondage as they do bring a good price. Yeah, that's what happened to Miss Endai, of course, who was captured along with her brothers and taken to Astapor. She became a scribe and they were despicably fashioned into unsullied soldiers. And her description as dusky-skinned, which the world book confirms is the usual trait for the Nathi, has led some fans to theorise that the so-called dusky woman, now with Victarion, could also hail from the Isle of Butterflies. And in response to the continued nighttime raids, the Nathi now tend to live inland in the hills and forests, diminishing their exports of fine handicrafts, shimmering silks, and delicate spiced wines. Altogether, the story of Nath, with its peaceful people and its butterflies in a continual battle with the grotesque slave trade, is quite a harrowing read, given George's design of the Nathi as a thoroughly likable and idealistic culture living in proximity to abominable villains. Leaving Nath, we began to sense the end of our journey as we sailed west across the summer sea to the Summer Isles. Storm Dancer is a marvellous ship, large and graceful. It's during our time on this swan ship with this crew that it occurred to us that the Summer Islanders embody the spirit of exploration and adventure that we ourselves have been seeking. Our captain tells us that being discovered by a Giskari ship caused immense curiosity about the outside world to the Summer Islanders, which was catalyzed by the realization that there could be financial payoffs via trading. After becoming involved with slave trading, Princess Xander Ko ended the brutality and united the islands and built the swan ships named for the prows carved into bird and beast shapes. Such histories are apparently carved into so-called talking trees in Tall Trees Town or maintained in their unique oral tradition of memorized verse. 
The Summer Islanders themselves are a handsome people, dark-skinned and black of hair and eye. Upon our arrival at the harbour at Last Lament on the Isle of Wallano, the locals welcomed us wearing capes of brightly coloured feathers. The feathers come from the local bird life with their splendid, bright plumage. The trees and jungle dominate the land full of these exotic birds and an abundance of delightful fruits. The very air smells perfumed with the intoxicating scent of their local flowers. During our week here, our captain often frequented the Temple of Love, where we understand he could find free sexual gratification from the priestesses. This tradition is rejoiced upon in the Summer Isles, and the priests and priestesses of their temples are very highly esteemed. The captain explained that every Summer Islander is expected to serve the needs of others in these temples at some point, because the union of male and female is sacred to their special goddess of love, beauty and fertility. So, the Summer Isles are comprised of three main islands, Jala, Omburu, and Wolano, which is the most populous, as well as several smaller islands, such as the Isle of Women, where Nymeria and her people resided for a time. I've always been keen sailors since the dawn of days, but as we heard in the travelogue, it was only until they were discovered by an outside race did they have ambitions of sailing beyond their horizon. By chance, after being blown by a storm, a Giscari trader ship landed on Wolano. The travellers believed the locals were demons due to the darkness of their skin, taking care to avoid the Demon Isle. In contrast to such superstitions, the Summer Islanders' response was one of insatiable curiosity, beginning for them a golden age of exploration. Perhaps inevitably, the action drew in the sharks, and Valerians and pirates saw the use for the sharp-minded, attractive, tall Summer Islanders as slaves. To their later regret, some Summer Islanders were complicit in the trade during the period now known as the Years of Shame. And as we mentioned, the Summer Islanders have their own hero, a warrior woman named Xander Ko, who overturned the local involvement in the slave trade, uniting the islanders as one people. Under her, they seem to have returned to their true roots, a culture of fearless seafarers and explorers who aren't typically aggressors. They've never invaded anywhere else in their long history, so we can get an idea why the slave trade had no business amidst these people. Yeah, wars on the Summer Isles rarely last over a day, and only the warriors themselves are injured during the events, which are said to resemble sort of tourney melees. Their rules of engagement disallow destruction, sacking, looting, and raping, and so perhaps Westeros could learn a thing or two from the Summer Isles, recalling the deeds of those such as Sir Gregor Clegane under the command of Tywin Lannister. And the information about... The goddess of love and the Summer Islanders' attitude towards sex 
ties in with the main books as Samuel Tarly sails aboard the swan ship Cinnamon Wind and raises his fat pink mast. It's on this journey where we learn of the islanders' respect for the elderly and the dead too, among other insights. And aside from those on the Cinnamon Wind, there are other summer islanders in the books. Jalabar Zoe is an exiled prince who perpetually requests Westerosi assistance in an invasion of his homeland until he's imprisoned by Kyburn under the false suspicion of sleeping with Queen Marjorie Tyrell. And there's lordly summer islanders at Danny and Drogo's wedding, as well as exotic dancers at Joffrey and Marjorie's. Finally, expect Black Black and the 50 summer islander archers whose awesome golden heart bows can pierce steel plate, to play a role in so-called Aegon VI invasion of Westeros with the Golden Company. And with the Summer Islands being the last place to visit on our journey, the final calling is now for home. Finally, we saw home in the distance. Had it really been five years since we set sail? We'd grown so accustomed to being on the deck of a ship, we couldn't imagine being back. But we were. We sailed to the edge of the world and back, like Lomas Longstrider and Corliss Valerian before us, bringing back new knowledge and tales to tell. And speaking of Corliss, we also took a leaf out of his book when we loaded our hold with fine silks and exotic spices in Yi Tea, and cloves, saffron, jet and jade, and scarlet samite in Lang. Corliss visited the Jade Sea, first filling the ship's hold with gold, and then buying twenty more ships at Carth, loading them with spices, elephants, and the finest silks. Amazingly, the profit he made back home elevated House Valerian to the richest in the realm, richer even than the Lannisters and the High Towers for a time. We traded our goods to wealthy merchants in King's Landing for enough gold to see us through a lifetime, and so we thank Corliss for the tip. The maps may have said, here be dragons, but we found compensation in gold, adventure, and knowledge instead. And so concludes our log of adventure and exploration in lands oft forgotten. It's great to return from Terra Incognita and finally be back here on Terra Firma. Dear listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our voyage into the East and beyond. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this special voyage into the unknown, and we'll be back soon with an episode all about Balon Greyjoy. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for A Song of Ice and Fire, for world building, and for maps. And to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to Patrick Silver Eagle, Lady Silverwing, 
Jill, Peppernix, Dean, Aileen, Josh, Casey, Amber, Eliana Targaryen, Aaron, Sasha, Matthew, Whitney, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, Jessica, June, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Melissa, Yorlan, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Aero Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone, Marcel, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to War and Peace, Wildling Ranger of the Night's Watch, Slayer of Others, and Defender of the Night Four, Matthew, Amanda, Crystal, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arion, Princess Zandico of the Summer Isles, Chris V, Craig, Brendan Beefish, Rebea, Lady of the Waves, Steve, Zainab, Rebecca Q, Jean A, Megan E, Yvonne, Mama J, Mother to Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Ones, Rachel, Felix, Brian, Matt L, James M, Rachel Mary, Jose, Michael M, Jason, Tanner, Iden, Quincy, Amber, Dimitri B, Scott Greenseer, Ellie, Pat, Direwolf, Martin, Javier, Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Spend Trails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Andres, Mary, and the Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed buckeye nuts on a maize field. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.